Yeah, I went to Southern uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2014. And at the time, uh, it seemed like a pretty solid seminary. And the longer I was there, the more I noticed changes taking place. And especially after the election of Donald Trump uh, in 2017, uh, the seminary did a complete change from where they were to where they are now, which is a social justice seminary. And um, in 2017, in the fall semester, there were three statements put out um, against Donald Trump or the alt-right, either from faculty or from uh, the administration there. Uh, Two of them originated in the school itself. And I thought, what's going on? And I started to see um, articles being put out about uh, race and uh, getting down on white people uh, for racism, if they were even things as simple as living in a community that... White privilege, yeah, terms like that. Um, and uh, I remember they were against the monuments. One of the things that, that happened on campus was one of the professors there uh, wrote against the monuments. Um, we had in one of the classes, I remember the professor wanted Christians to apologize for the Crusades, for the Holocaust, for slavery, uh, because that was the Christian thing to do. Yeah, anti-Semitism, Christians being involved in that in the past. If people in the church allegedly were anti-Semitic, then it was the responsibility of present-day Christians to apologize for that so as to alleviate concerns that non-Christians might have with joining Christianity. This was in, a, I believe, a pastoral leadership class that I heard that one. Um, I remember there was a lunch hosted by the Kingdom Diversity Center, which was this new center that forwarded multiculturalism and liberation theology, and uh, they hosted a lunch to support the kneelers at the football games. And so these are the kinds of things that I wasn't expecting in a seminary education, right? Black liberation theology was primarily the kind that the Kingdom Diversity Center focused on. My father is a pastor, and, uh, you know, he's more of a, I guess, reformed, but uh, just a Bible church, you know, non-denominational. And so I went to Southeastern, not because I was a Southern Baptist, but because I thought it was the closest place that I could get a good education and understand what the Bible had to say in the original languages. And I was disappointed while I was there. They dropped hermeneutics from their MDiv program as a requirement. You don't have to take that. Hermeneutics is interpreting the text of Scripture and the assumptions that we come with, that we have, the logical assumptions in approaching the text. So like, authorial intent, what did the author mean, what did the original audience hear, uh, what was the historical context. It's, it's vital. It should be one of the main things that you focus on, but they stopped requiring it for pastors. So if you get a master of divinity, which qualifies you to be a chaplain or a pastor, you no longer have to take hermeneutics. That started when I was there. They redid the program. They dropped a theology course. Um, so the, the things were changing at the school, and they were changing fast. And I, I remember it was a uh, and I believe it was 2014, so right as I'm coming in, they got a grant from the Kern Family Foundation uh, to implement some faith and economics classes. And since that time, uh, in their undergrad especially, they have been implementing more classes to the point that now you can major in justice and social ethics and take classes like race relations and classes on the environment. And this is at a, a seminary. And that could have been one of the reasons that things did change was that grant um, and more money that came after that from the same foundation. Uh, But there was definitely a switch in the focus of the seminary. It no longer was 
emphasizing missions as much as it used to. It was known as the mission school, but now it was emphasizing social justice more and racial reconciliation. At the time, uh, it would be common to hear students talking about racial reconciliation being a gospel issue or um, the care for sojourners, uh, illegal immigrants who might come here. They would never use that term, but that's a gospel issue. And, um, and, and any anti-poverty kind of um, or pro-environment kind of uh, program uh, would be a gospel issue. So there was a broadening of what the gospel was and the kind of concerns that um, the gospel would um, address. And uh, the, you know, it was a big tent in the sense of you could be an evolutionist, you could be a creationist, you could be Arminian, you could be a Calvinist. But one thing you could not do was question the social justice narrative. So it's a new orthodoxy that's come in. And I remember I was concerned with the direction of the seminary, and I went and I spoke with a professor that I trusted at the time, and um, he, we shut the door, and he told me, John, if I were to speak out against this movement and say what I really think, they would fire me. And he had been there for quite some time. And that scared me. That made me realize that this was no game. This wasn't like creation evolution where they could disagree on campus. This was something that they uh, believed that everyone had to be on the same page about. Uh, I felt very intimidated. I, I felt like my opinion did not matter when I tried to raise my hand in class and object to some of the things that I was hearing. Uh, it wasn't recognized as much as other students who uh, would voice concerns over social justice. And so, um, I determined over a course of time watching what was happening to my seminary that I probably would not be very welcomed in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I decided not to go that direction with my life. And that enabled me after graduating to put together an hour and a half um, speech that I made on camera, I put it on YouTube, uh, about my experience at Southeastern. And after I basically told all about what happened. I had seminary students, I had faculty from various Southern Baptist schools, not just Southeastern, reaching out to me, thanking me, telling me that they could not speak out because of uh, the fact that they were funded to go to school or they were working in the mechanism of the denomination, but they were grateful that I had told the truth about what was happening. I was no longer a Southern Baptist. I did not take a dime from the denomination to fund my education, and I wasn't planning on working for them, and so I had felt I had the freedom to warn others who might attend a seminary. And I wasn't against people going there. I just wanted them to know what they were getting into if they did go, because they didn't advertise it at the time. You only found out about it once you got there, potentially. If you want to be a pastor in a Southern Baptist Convention and you want to go to Southeastern to get that education, you could go through your whole MDiv program and never once take a class on any book of the Bible individually, never take hermeneutics, take maybe two semesters of Hebrew, two semesters of Greek, two theology courses, and most of the rest of it could be things like leadership development and fluff courses is what I call them. And so we have men now that are going into churches who do not know how to rightly handle the Word of God, and that's a scary thought to me. Uh, in some cases, I mean, that there's a mixed bag there because some obviously are taking those classes, and there are good professors there, but um, those who come in with an activist mindset, who just care about social justice, they can get through the whole entire program, get a degree, and then they're qualified to go into a church. And we've seen this split churches up. Uh, we had um, 
just recently someone from the local area around Southeastern had a seminary student who had graduated pastoring the church where he was at. And this pastor told him that he needed to apologize because he shared a last name with a minority family in the church. And the implication was that because they had the same last name, uh, his family must have owned their family in slavery at some point in time. And these were two families that had no problems with each other, got along great. They would not do it. Uh, They believed at first that this individual looked up his ancestry information, found out he did not have slave owners, in fact, and that this pastor was wrong. Uh, He did not do it, but there was a tension from that point forward because he did not. And the pastor of the church uh, did not um, put him in positions of leadership where he had been serving previously. And he eventually left the church, and the church itself does not exist anymore. And this is one example among many. Their their generational sin is now a category. And so that's what this particular individual was told, that he was in generational sin. I've seen uh, students who also recognized the problem, but most of them, I would say, do not. Because they're not hearing another side to it. Those who disagree are silenced. Those who agree are very loud. And so... Students are hearing this all the time. They go turn on their television, they hear the same thing. Internet, the same thing. Society, the same thing. Everywhere you look. And so they're being um, saturated with social justice. And so they don't know anything different, many of them. And they don't know what critiques are out there against what they're being told. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention, though they tout that they are non-hierarchical like a Presbyterian church, the Southern Baptist Convention is very hierarchical. Uh, the, it is a game of follow the leader. And I learned that the hard way when I was at Southeastern. There is a chain of command. Sometimes it's unspoken. But if you disrupt the ship, uh, they will let you know about it. And sometimes uh, it's, you know, I'm walking on campus and I see professors talking and they stop talking and look at me as I turn the corner. Uh, sometimes it's a direct uh, email from the vice president of the school telling me to stop uh, speaking out against something they're doing. And so, um, so, so there's a lot of control happening within the denomination and the institutions in it. So earlier, um, actually it was late last year in the fall, I received some communications from members of First Baptist Church in Naples, Florida, which is a very large church, Southern Baptist Church. And they told me uh, that their church was essentially the leadership accusing them of the sin of racism. And they were not racists. And um, I did not want to get involved in a local church matter. I did not know the context. But as I listened to some of the members talk to me, I thought this is exactly the fruit of what I was being taught at Southeastern. They, they talked to me because I had a platform at that time. I'd already spoken out against what was happening at Southeastern in regards to the social justice movement out of a concern and a love I had uh, that the school would turn around. That, that has not happened. And I continued to expose not just Southeastern, but the Southern Baptist Convention and even in some cases other organizations like CREW that have gone the same direction. And they knew me from my online platform. And so they talked to me about what was happening to them because they were experiencing exactly what I was talking about on my podcast. Um, the more I talked to them, the more I was convinced that I needed to go check this out uh, by, for, for, with my own eyes by myself. And so I went down there um, with some of you and we uh, talked to the folks at First Baptist Naples, First Baptist Church in Naples, 
and found out that what they had gone through was completely unjust, and we started tracing the for how this happened, sequ- sequencing it out, and um, what we found, I think, was just absolutely incredible. It, you know, you cannot talk to these people without shedding tears over how they were mistreated and um, a sense of corruption that, you know, this is the work of the devil, not the work of the Spirit. Because they would not vote uh, to affirm, 19% of them wouldn't, a pastor who was in favor of the social justice movement on various levels. So this pastor, uh, according to a social media um, footprint, have been retweeting Camilla Harris, endorsing Eric Mason's book, Woke Church. Well, the pastor uh, was black and had a mixed racial family. His wife was white and um, had actually used that as one of his qualifications that because uh, uh, he had a mixed racial family, I guess leadership at the church was promoting him as someone who could deal with conflict because clearly there must be conflict between white people and black people. This is just an assumption of the movement. And uh, this particular pastor um, had uh, endorsed Black Lives Matter on a certain level. He did um, on his Twitter account, but then when he was asked about it in front of the congregation, when they were trying to figure out if they wanted to vote to affirm him, he said that he did not agree with the radical elements of Black Lives Matter. In his mind, he thought that there was a just uh, reason for Black Lives Matter to exist because policemen, on some level, were racist. He had other... uh, tweets that seemed to indicate that, and so they, they had a legitimate concern about the police, and uh, so he felt comfortable endorsing them on a certain level. Yes, they do have uh, Marxist underpinnings. Um, I believe a Maoist group uh, in China is, has started the movement. He also, from the stage at this church, uh, voiced support for Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction and said that that is not a sin to have that orientation. According to him, if you have an innate orientation where you desire some of the same, someone of the same sex sexually, that is not sinful in the eyes of God. It's just acting on it. Only acting on it. That's right. So to be thoroughly consistent, a man could look at a woman and desire to do sexual things with her body, and that must not be sin either unless he actually does it. I wish they would have followed up with a question like that, but they did not. Didn't the Lord Jesus say, Well, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, or Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, talks about the innate desires being, having to be, you know, mortified. And, uh, that's right. And what, what we found was that those who were against uh, affirming this pastor uh, were not racist. In fact, uh, one of them ran the Operation Christmas Child Ministry. One of them ran a missions organization that went to Africa and helped people. One of them escaped South Africa during apartheid because they didn't care for apartheid. These were not racists. They were conservatives. They were Orthodox Christians, and they were concerned with a man who not only promoted social justice and same-sex attraction, but wanted to change the way ministry would be done in their church. He wanted to take Bible study leaders and he wanted to make them facilitators to get rid of hierarchy. Um, and, and these were the kinds of things that they were concerned about. I believe it was a mixture of not just 
the gospel going forward in Africa, but also humanitarian work like digging wells and those kinds of things. And so he was trying to help them in material and uh, you know, spiritual ways. And what, what we found as we talked to the, the people at Naples is that there's actually a history behind what happened. It's kind of like the tip of the iceberg was what got out into the internet, uh, them being accused of racism. There have been changes going on at First Baptist Naples for quite some time. In 2016, they went from being an elder-led church to a committee-led church to take away some of that power from the senior pastor. And then uh, the senior pastor in January of last year was escorted off campus in uh, by the security because they voted him out. And this was all uh, not, this was not communicated to the congregation as to why they were getting rid of their senior pastor other than there were some indiscretions that they could not talk about. And after the senior pastor uh, left, they ended up having uh, this group, this consultation group that actually works with NAM and Southern Baptist entities called Oxano come in and advise them uh, on what they should do with their church moving forward as far as ministry is concerned. And pretty soon, um, they had you know, the, the pastor who was there, who was um, taking the place in, in the, you know, that, that time in between uh, when they were trying to find a new pastor, uh, John Eady, he wanted to get rid of Operation Christmas Child. He wanted to get rid of weddings at the church. There were some major changes that were happening. And it seemed like during that summer, every big wig elite member of the Southern Baptist Convention was coming to preach there. Even as they were draining money, they were paying for elites in the SBC to come speak. And so the congregation is seeing this, and they're wondering, what's happening in our church? There was um, a book called Next, and one of the deacons there who had voted against um, Marcus Hayes uh, went to a meeting where uh, the folks from Oxana were promoting this book. And in the book, uh, there, there is language to the effect of uh, you need to make sure that your pastor is a certain age or you have a diversity of age. Uh, you need to make your church more diverse uh, in racially um, in regards to age. It, it's about church growth. It's strategies and so sociological strategies, really. There, there, the word love appears a lot. The word sin does not appear, I think, ever in the book as I looked at it. So, so, so they're bringing in all this material and they're going to change the direction of the entire church. And Marcus Hayes became the man for the job, not just among the leadership at FBC Naples, but among the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. J.D. Greer wrote a letter to be read in the Sunday service in support of Marcus Hayes. Uh, Kevin Ezel uh, at NAM had a video uh, in, in the church service play where he spoke glowingly of Marcus Hayes and not even in a way that said you should vote for him, but in a way that said thank you for voting for him. It was a coronation. It wasn't a vote. The most thoroughly social justice driven components of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, Kevin Ezel, Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary where I went, are involved in changing the direction of a large megachurch in one of the most conservative areas of the swing state, Florida. If you can change a church with 10,000 people, if you remember back to Bush and Gore, um, and you can get that church to the effect of the community around them and start focusing on social justice concerns, then you can swing a whole entire national election. It looks through the lens of power 
and how much power someone has in a particular society. And so Marcus Hayes, who was going to be the pastor there and before 19% of the courageous members stood up against him, he endorses on some level Black Lives Matter, retweeting Camilla Harris. Yeah, she's a senator from California running. Yeah, a Democrat was just recently running in the election until she didn't get enough votes to continue or enough support to continue. But it demonizes the very sections of the culture, the, the very parts of the hierarchy that God has ordained, like policemen. God has ordained them for a task. And this, Romans 13, and this movement rips them down, takes their reputations and rubs them in the mud. The social justice movement at its base is egalitarian. That's why Marcus, it's anti-authority. That's why, the, well, as long as the right people are in charge, there's always an authority structure that's inescapable. But in the, so, but the traditional authorities that God has ordained, it wants to create a new hegemony. And Marcus Hayes uh, is consistent in that respect because not only politically does he rip down the police officers and uh, those who would represent civilization, but he wants to create a Bible study uh, program at the church that doesn't have actual leaders, but facilitators. So it, it's a complete flatlining of the roles that God has given us. And it takes ignorance to do this. So after uh, those who voted against Marcus Hayes did what they did, this became a firestorm. The uh, leadership at FBC Naples decided to write a letter to the Southern Baptist Convention apologizing for the racism in their midst. And the, the, those who were the ringleaders of this 19% were excommunicated from the church uh, some of them even received cease and desist orders. Uh, they were served so that they would not be able to come and trespass, allegedly, on church property, simply because they opposed Marcus Hayes. Some businesses were targeted for members in the church who uh, voted against Marcus Hayes. Uh, the church went full authoritarian on this particular issue, and the result of all of it was they wanted to do a revote. And Marcus Hayes declined to go through that process again. And so instead, what's happened is uh, Jonathan Aiken, who is Danny Aiken's son. Danny Aiken is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I went. So here's, here's the catch. Not for an interim pastor, they didn't have to vote. So Jonathan Aiken, uh, even on his, uh, his footprint online, has supported social justice. But... If he's an interim pastor, there's no need to vote for him. So now he has been interim preaching there. They fly him down every weekend, even though they're draining money, and uh, he preaches there. I have not listened to his sermons. Um, I do know that he is without experience. Uh, those who were part of the church were trying to look up sermons that he's done, anything, and they, there's only one sermon they could find. It wasn't that great, and he doesn't have, no, he doesn't have pastoral experience, and yet he's now pastoring one of the largest churches in Florida, though he doesn't live in Florida. He's friends with Marcus Hayes. His father is in North Carolina, where Kevin Ezel is as well. And all, all of these guys, and J.D. Greer, by the way, they're all in that area in North Carolina. Marcus Hayes, Kevin Ezel, J.D. Greer, and Danny Aiken. And they're somehow having a say in what happens in a church in southwest Florida. I believe this is coming from the highest levels of the Southern Baptist Convention, and FBC Naples was supposed to be the poster child for what the new 
Southern Baptist Church should look like. And the new Southern Baptist Church is going to be about social justice. And they're not going to have weddings because they want to avoid as much as possible the same-sex marriage issue. But this is the new Southern Baptist Convention. And the new Southern Baptist Convention will not resemble the old. It will be culturally palatable. It will be the kind of Southern Baptist Convention your kids would want to go to because it fits their style and their morals. You can look at all the steps that are being taken and it's setting it up for a church that won't confront certain sins. If you don't have, uh, in their small groups, if you don't have someone authoritative there who is a representative of the church as an elder teaching, he's just a facilitator or she, um, then how are you going to ever confront sin? So this whole thing is set up to um, normalize sins, to uh, keep them from being confronted, uh, and to uh, create a leftward turn in the convention. The next thing they voted on was to give themselves a pay raise. And across the board, all the pastors who were on staff at the church received more money, though the church itself was actually losing money. Well, I start finding out that Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary is not the only compromised institution within evangelical Christianity. In fact, most of evangelical Christianity is compromised on some level or is in the process of being compromised. So one of the first things that happened after finding out the extent of, to which the cancer had been developing in the Southern Baptist Convention, I was reached out to by people at Crew, formerly Campus Crusade, and they were telling me about what was happening in their organization, and I decided to start watching their uh, staff conference from the summer 2019, and it was worse than anything I think I had seen at Southeastern. It was a woke fest. Uh, I did not hear the gospel presented, though I'm sure there probably was a, a little corner somewhere that it was presented, but the speeches that I listened to over and over, I, I probably listened to about 19 hours of, of material. I did not hear the gospel presented in that 19 hours. What I heard was that if you want to know what the Bible really says, you better read it from the lens of the oppressed. I heard that uh, if you're white, that you're complicit in sin of some kind, and it doesn't even matter what your ancestors did. The very fact that your skin color gives you privilege means that you're in sin of some kind. Um, I heard a whole host of things that were friendly to the Democratic Party. Well, one of the things I heard that was shocking was that we are in a second Holocaust in this country because of the deportation of illegal immigrants. One of the speakers, actually, um, one who's actually on staff with Crew, had everyone in the audience stand up and they read a liturgy against white privilege confessing their sin. It seems like along with the name change, some other things changed as well. One of the curious things, though, and this is um, a fascinating uh, thing that I've found, a connection that exists that I didn't realize existed, is that crew um, is being compromised by things that have happened years ago. And when I say years ago, I'm talking about 60s radical revolutionary social justice type movements are affecting what's happening in crew now, and not just crew. Bill Bright was against the 60s radical movements. In fact, Jim Wallace had gone to, it was, I believe, Urbana 71 and protested what was happening because Bill Bright was a conservative. So Wallace was against Bill Bright? Wallace was. All these guys were against Bill Bright at one time. Bill Bright founded this organization. Well, Bill Bright's dead now. He's 
and it's a new organization. And so one of the things that I found out was I looked at the Lenses Institute. The Lenses Institute, kind of as the name implies, uh, is for getting those who work with crew to understand culture in a way that makes them less offensive, more winsome. And in order to do that, they must look at the culture through a new lens. John Perkins uh, is what was popular in the late 60s, mostly early 70s, and did some good things, but he is now um, thought well of in the Gospel Coalition. He's spoken at Southern Seminary, and he has influenced Cruz Lenses Institute. And there are three R's, three R's that, that John Perkins uh, believed in. Relocation, reconciliation, and redistribution. Relocation, reconciliation, and redistribution. So he would probably say that he's not a socialist, but the, the theology, this public theology that he advocated was in order to identify with the poor and oppressed, you need to relocate. You need to go where they are. And then you need to reconcile. That's not just between man and God, but you need to do racial reconciliation and reconcile people groups. Do that in addition to repentance to God. It means that for your, the social group that you're in needs to repent to another social group and receive that forgiveness. And then the third thing to do, which is the most socialist sounding thing, is to redistribute. So money, resources, privilege must be uh, redistributed from one group that has those things to another group who does not. So if, if, if there's a poor minority inner city group, for example, uh, then the Christian thing to do if you're going to engage with them is to, to move there, to uh, reconcile with them, and then to give them your money or privilege. So this, this, this idea, the, this, this three, these three R's that John Perkins came up with, they are now being used in the Lenses Institute to train people into how to do urban ministry. Uh, they talk about the true Christian gospel. What I do know is I, the reports I've, I've been hearing from people's experiences there are horrendous. Uh, one crew staff member reached out to me and said that uh, she was in California. She was told to go to an exhibit on homosexual art. And she was told to observe and learn from that exhibit, not to witness to anyone, she was told not to do that, but instead just to learn from gay culture. Understand, shape your lens. Understand uh, from the point of view of the oppressed, in this case being sexual minorities, which is another term that's being used now. And I, I'm not saying John Perkins approves of all of that. I'm saying, though, I found a connection between what the Lenses Institute is doing and the ministry of John Perkins. I, I have an example of one crew staff member um, doing evangelism on campus, but not sharing the gospel, just sharing the story of himself being homosexual, coming out. Did a whole word, spoken word uh, demonstration on this. And so, so not, a, not in the spoken word, no, it was just, I'm a homosexual. I, I am a homosexual now. Jesus, Jesus has set me free from sin, but I'm still a homosexual. Yeah. So that's what's going on in organizations like Crew. Uh, I'll read you a quote from Perkins. As John Perkins said, evangelicals surrendered their leadership in the civil rights movement because uh, they believed uh, that they had not gone, that he believed that they had not gone on to preach the whole gospel. And so this is going to be key in everything else I'm going to be sharing with you. 
there is a concept of the whole gospel versus the partial gospel. In order to um, advocate, so evangelize, do ministry using the whole gospel, you, you need to be part of efforts to redistribute and uh, promote racial reconciliation and the relocation. That's the whole gospel. If you're a Christian and you live out in Iowa somewhere where you're just farming and the civil rights movement isn't happening, but you didn't get involved in the civil rights movement, you're not practicing the whole gospel, even if it was a tangential issue for you. If you don't, as one social justice pastor recently told me in Washington, D.C., if you do not speak out against the injustice around you, racially speaking, that you are denying the gospel. So it is the Galatian heresy. It's adding to the gospel. And I uncovered this by mistake and thought, I wonder if there are other connections that exist between what's happening now and the campus radical movements that happened in the 1970s and early the late 60s. John Perkins is one of them, but he was the most mild one I think I found. He's the mild one. Um, during, the, I'm going to back up a little bit to give some context to this, but in uh, 1947, Carl Henry, who was Al Mohler's mentor, wrote a book called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And Harold Ockinga wrote the foreword to this book. Both Carl Henry and Harold Ockinga were very instrumental in starting Fuller Seminary, Christianity Today, what we know today as evangelicalism, including the Evangelical Theological Society. Carl Henry said that fundamentalism had denied the social component of Christianity, and he might have been right about that. Harold Ockinga, in the foreword to this book, said, uh, gave an example of someone who was a Christian and became a Christian in a fundamentalist church, but, be, but became a progressive uh, political uh, person on their knees, praying. And this was the kind of thing that the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism was trying to make way for, so that uh, not, not just progressive Christianity, but they wanted a Christianity that was unlike fundamentalism in that it engaged culture. It had influence in the culture. They wanted, well, it, it tended to be more left, but they wanted, really all they were after was being academically accepted and, and having influence in the culture. A secularized culture now that doesn't honor the pastor, well, they have to do something to make the pastor something other than a pastor. So the pastor is now a therapist. The pastor is now, um, yeah, an, an, an academic. So they're going to reinstate Christianity this way. And you can maybe admire that effort. From Carl Henry, though, Carl Henry inspired others to take this farther. Those who have been affected by the new left. People like Samuel Escobar says, I read Carl Henry's book and I realized what was missing from my theology. And he started going down the path of liberation theology in Latin America. Spoke with Billy Graham at the Lausanne Conference in 1974 and forwarded an evangelical uh, spin on liberation theology. Uh, Richard Mao uh, in the Reform, the Dutch Reform tradition, um, uh, ends up getting radicalized in college and starts to walk away from his Christian faith. But he reads uh, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, finds out that there's a way to base his new left, new left ideas on a Christian uh, biblical framework. They tend to be anti-communism. You know, Billy Graham was like that. Um, they they uh, 
tend to be against personal sins more than they are quote-unquote social sins. And so here's where the new left ideas come into play. And I'll, it is, yeah, but one, the, the premier institution uh, for even neo-evangelicalism is what they called what Carl Henry came up with was Fuller Theological Seminary. And uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, I'm going to give you some statistics here. In, 19, in the 1950s, 75% of the students who attended Fuller Theological Seminary prioritized evangelism over social, economic, and political justice. By the end of the 1960s, the number had dropped to 25%. In 1972, Fuller Theological Seminary prioritized social concern, and I'm going to quote here, regarding racial justice, race relationships, problems of church and state, social work, family guidance, care of handicapped children, problems in urban society, the relationship between evangelism and social concern, concern for the oppressed and needy, and the implications of the gospel for Christian citizens in contemporary society. So this seminary started changing their focus from understanding the Bible and communicating it to souls to now transforming social structures. And this ended up creating a new movement. People like uh, Jim Wallace, Ron Sider, John Alexander, Sharon Gallagher, Samuel Escobar, and the list goes on, came together in 1973, and they put together what was called the Chicago uh, Declaration on Evangelical Social Concern. And the Chicago Declaration on Evangelical Social Concern was not just signed by them, but also uh, many bigwigs in neo-evangelicalism, including Carl Henry. He signed it. So here's, here's a portion of the Chicago Statement, Chicago Declaration. We must attack the materialism of our culture and the maldistribution of the nation's wealth and services. We recognize that as a nation, we play a crucial role in the imbalance and injustice of international trade and development. Before God and a billion hungry neighbors, we must rethink our values regarding our present standard of living and promote a more just acquisition and distribution of the world's resources. I'm going to read for you just a little more. We acknowledge our Christian responsibilities of citizenship. Therefore, we must challenge the misplaced trust of the nation in economic and military might, a proud trust that promotes a national pathology of war and violence, which victimizes our neighbors at home and abroad. We must resist the temptation to make the nation and its institutions objects of near religious loyalty. And last but not least, we acknowledge that we have encouraged men to prideful domination and women to irresponsible passivity. So we call both men and women to mutual submission and active discipleship. Now, Carl Henry signed this, Alma Moeller's mentor. The Carl Henry who influenced Walter Strickland and Matt Hall. Well, Carl Henry was friends with Richard Nixon and did not go as far. He's not part of the progressive social justice movement of the 70s, but he gave them cover because he legitimized what they were doing by showing up at that conference and signing their statement. Carl Henry has opened the door for this. Neo-evangelicals opened the door for this. And then what happened was in the late 1960s, campus radical movements. Jim Wallace was part of Students for a Democratic Society. Jim, Jim Wallace grew up in an evangelical household. That's right. And, and then became liberal when he went to college. And he started getting disenchanted with Christianity. But when he watched what the Weather Underground was doing, he thought something's wrong here. And so he went back to the faith of his youth and he reformulated the Christianity he grew up with. And he wasn't alone in that. Ron Sider did the same thing. I believe it was some kind of an Anabaptist denomination. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I know, I know um, 
well, there, there were different streams that came in to motivate this movement. You had a stream coming from the Calvinist tradition, which was a Dutch reformed Neo-Kyperians. Richard Mound made Kuiper uh, his mentor, essentially, and uh, Richard Mao has greatly influenced uh, people like Tim Keller, um, the Gospel Coalition. Uh, they are very Neo-Kyperian. So they believe in this concept of common grace uh, that says that we should, uh, that, that the gospel should not just redeem individual souls, but structures and institutions in society. Temporary structures that the gospel, so here's, here's a hypothetical for you. The gospel could redeem a prison system without any of the prison guards or the prisoners being saved. But they're more just now. So that is part of, that's, that's part of the, the gospel's work uh, or the, the church's work in engaging culture. And they can use common grace to do that. And so this is now in the air. This is just what the Gospel Coalition believes, is what Richard Mao advocated. And so Richard Mao was one of these campus radicals who ended up uh, reading Carl Henry and realizing that, you know what, actually I'm going to go back to my Christian roots. So that's the Neo-Kyperian uh, vein. So it was a, a communitarian kind of approach to it. Um, I think the main thing that Kuiper gives to the social justice uh, sort of paradigm that we're seeing now is this idea of common grace, that there's something redemptive in even godless cultures, and that, so there's a spark of good somewhere in humanity, no matter where they are, because, you know, they're made in the image of God, so there's a spark of good somewhere. And so this is why the Gospel Coalition has so many articles where they say, what, what can the church learn from Sesame Street, or what can the church learn from, you know, Baby Yoda, or some kind of cultural, you know, K-pop, um, because that, they're looking for something that's, that's to, to teach them from the godless culture, because God's at work there. That's what that Kuiper would have believed, and that's what Richard Mao advocates. The church now is positioned to engage culture. Not, they're not, it's not the world, it's culture. So they're not within culture, just living their lives. They're manufacturing culture. They're producing culture. And that's the job, and that's evangelism. And, and Richard Mao wrote a book in 1973 called Political Evangelism. And if you, if you read the book, essentially what he advocates is his thesis. Political action was an aspect of the evangelistic task of the church. A full gospel, there's that word again, concerned with the whole man meant that Christ's atoning work offers liberation for people in their cultural endeavors, including political institutions and the making of public policy. So we would say it is fine to go and to engage culture, to bring a prophetic word against evil and to promote good. But Richard Mao is saying that's part of evangelism. That's part of sharing the gospel. It almost sounds like that is the only gospel and there's no emphasis on the individual's need to re repent at all. Which is why I brought up the Fuller statistic. Pretty soon that kind of emphasis change the emphasis of the church. So if you overemphasize something, it means you must be underemphasizing something else. That's right. So Tim Keller was uh, completely and thoroughly inculcated in this kind of thinking, quotes Richard Mao in, in many of his books. Bruce Ashford at Southeastern, he's the provost there, uh, very influenced by Kuiper, named one of his sons Kuiper. So there, there's a very strong neo-Kyperian vein that has now gone past the Dutch Reform movement into now Southern Baptist and Presbyterian circles, where it wasn't before. Uh, Tom Skinner is another um, uh, advocate of the, sort of the 1970s social justice paradigm. He spoke with Billy Graham, spoke for InterVarsity, and Walter Strickland 
who was on the committee that gave us Resolution 9 in the Southern Baptist Convention. I was very influenced by him. Resolution 9 uh, endorsed critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools that could be used to interpret society. And, and these ideas, a lot of people think, are new, but the thing is they're actually developing. These ideas have histories. They go back to cultural Marxism and the new left ideas that were in the university campuses of the 1960s. And they've just now become more sophisticated than they were before. But Walter Strickland was not just affected by James Cone and Gutierrez, um, but he was actually affected by someone like a Tom Skinner. Uh, Tom Skinner also uh, rejected the incomplete gospel of the fundamentalists. There's that word again, that, that complete gospel. It's incomplete. You, you have to do something to redeem society as an institution, as a whole, the system. Well, it, it could very well. I think they would say that they reject that. But what but the New Left did, the New Left said, we're not Marxists. But yet, they critiqued capitalism in a very similar way to the way Marx did. And they changed the haves and have-nots sometimes to racial categories or other categories. And so that's what Tom Skinner kind of buys into that, and a lot of these other guys do. Because it's not enough to change a soul, and then that soul is now making decisions as a new man. You have to go do something political, or else it's not the gospel. And uh, Tom Skinner proposed third-way communities where it wouldn't be liberal, it wouldn't be conservative, it would just be the church is just this third way, this, this other option. And they're going to have a, you know, radical love in that space, but they're not going to take a side politically. Um, he rejected the white Jesus in his 1970 book, How Black is the Gospel. Um, he says that the Jesus that, uh, who came from white society uh, was the defender of the American system, president of the New York Stock Exchange, head of the Pentagon, chairman of the National Republican Committee, a flag-waving patriotic American, and against everything else. That's a false Jesus, and we need to reject that Jesus. And so he set up this, this idea that you know, the, even the people like Billy Graham had this, and, and he spoke with Billy Graham, but the fundamentalists and those who are the conservative evangelicals, they have this false white Jesus. And we need to reject that Jesus. Well, he's critiquing what he thinks is the popular American cultural Jesus. And some of his critiques may be correct. But he's going the extra step now and saying we need to, he's, he's parroting what liberation theologians say. You can't have a white Jesus. Have a, a black Jesus, yeah. An oppressed Jesus. So, so that's, um, that's Richard Mao. It's Tom Skinner. And the most interesting, uh, perhaps of all, of the evangelical social justice advocates of the 1970s is Ron Sider. Ron Sider wrote a book in 1978 called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And in that book, Ron Sider advocates the redistribution of wealth from first world societies like the United States to third world societies. And he heaps guilt upon those who have exploited and benefited from the oppression of those around the world who don't look like them. Um, he says things like the rich often neglect or oppose justice because it demands that they end their oppression and share with the poor. So he, he ramps up this guilt in this book from 1978. And, and he now has become a guru for the ERLC and Russell Moore. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention hosted a conference in 2016 where Ron Sider spoke, and they've also produced videos with him. In this, at this particular conference, um, it was on the uh, sacredness of life. Ron Sider criticized the pro-life movement for inconsistency in not caring about poverty, 
starvation, smoking, the environmental degradation, racism, and capital punishment, because those are also equally pro-life issues. He said, I think there's probably nothing that white evangelicals could do to pers- more to persuade African-American Christians to join the pro-life movement against abortion than for us to say that precisely because we are consistently pro-life, we join them in insisting that black lives matter. Standing ovation. They cheered him for saying that at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission conference in 2016. Russell Moore recently, in 2019, interviewed Ron Sider, and Russell Moore said, I agree with him uh, on a lot of things, and I have two shelves filled with his books. There is a history to the movement we're seeing now, and here's what happened, because most people think this came out of nowhere, but I'm going to explain very briefly what happened. In the early 1970s, Christianity, evangelicalism in particular, was going down a path to social justice. In 1972, there was Evangelicals Form and Govern. In 1973, there was the Chicago Declaration. In 1974, there was the Lausanne uh, Covenant, signed by Billy Graham even. And this, this was all happening. And Richard Quebedeau, who was um, a historian and a, a contemporary observer, called this movement the Young Evangelicals and said the Young Evangelicals are, they're going in a new direction. Included in that was even some who thought that same-sex attraction, uh, which is what we're hearing now, uh, was a, a fixed orientation, separated from an action someone took. Most of the ideas that we see now it had a history, and it started in campus radical movements, mostly of the 1960s, It grew in evangelical, uh, mostly academic institutions in the early 70s, and Richard Quibodeau said, this is where evangelicalism's going. This is, if we can politicize this voting block, we'll be unstoppable. And we know what happened. Jimmy Carter got elected. He was the first successful president that they were able to rally around and elect, but he was a failure to the working class. And working class people rallied around Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and people like that, the moral majority, uh, the religious right formed, and they took the nation by storm and stole all the headlines. People got tired. They, you know, it, was, it was working class people in their local communities saying, I don't care what you do, but just leave me alone. But they wouldn't be left alone. Prayer was taken out of schools. And then um, you know, people they know are having abortions, and they're saying, this is crazy. Where, what's going on? And finally, after Carter's failed president, because he's, he's going to be the one to save us, the cord snapped. And Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and some of these other guys turned on Jimmy Carter. And they found a young actor named Ronald Reagan to represent their views. And, and, and so they stole the headlines with a new kind of um, a... a populist movement, really, similar to what we're seeing now with Trump. It was a populist from the ground up movement. The people who read these evangelical leftist magazines like The Other, the, like the other Side and Sojourners, they were academics. They were people who worked for the government. They were elites. So it was an academic elitist movement, the social justice movement. But the religious right was, it was much bigger numbers, grassroots. They had the votes. They could sway elections. And so the media all ran over there and paid attention to them. Those who were social justice also were struggling with the fact that identity politics didn't work too well. So you have uh, the women didn't care for what uh, the black people were trying to do in the movement, who didn't care for what uh, you know, the environmentalism people or the anti-war people were doing. 
it was it was started it was just starting it was kind of on the tails of the feminist movement um but but two things really happened to derail the social justice movement of the early 70s which was going to be the next big thing moral majority and a populist movement came in and identity politics fragmented the social justice movement and so throughout the 1980s into the 1990s uh, everyone associated conservatism uh, with, Christi with evangelical Christianity until George W. Bush started interfaith initiatives and Barack Obama used that mechanism to bring Jim Wallace back to the White House. Jim Wallace has now met with Tim Keller in, in a meeting with Tim Keller to, to figure out how do we get rid of Trump in 2016. Well, because now you have evangelical denominations and organizations like you know, World Vision being one that now are receiving money for settling refugees. So they have an incentive to, to get money from the government. They, but what happened in the 1970s was all the folks that were going to be political, you know, John Alexander, Ron Sider, Jim Wallace, you know, Samuel Escobar, Sharon Gallagher, they ended up going other places. And those who were contemporary with them ended up going into other places, mostly in academia. So they are now teaching. They're not, they're, they're under the radar. They're not getting the headlines the religious right's getting but they're still present. They never, they didn't all die. They didn't go away. They, they kept doing what they were doing and they taught it in places like Wheaton College and Fuller Theological Seminary. And uh, the next generation of academics and pastors have been taught at their feet. Yeah, well, Schaefer, uh, yeah, Schaefer's in, I don't know if we want to go down the Schaefer path. Schaefer's actually a mixed bag. So he actually was the disciple. Uh, Sharon, Sharon Gallagher and the Christian World Liberation Front at Berkeley were disciples of Schaefer. Schaefer, early on, Schaefer was one of the left, the new left kind of like gurus. They thought like he's the guy. And then I think they went to the left of him and it was like, what? And um, him and Jerry Falwell became friends and it changed everything. Schaefer has a neo-Kyperian kind of undergirding. Yeah. Yeah. I love Schaefer. I love Schaefer too, but and I'm not trying to bash the guy, but you probably don't want to bring up Schaefer in this documentary because he's, he is kind of, it, I was disappointed when I read that. I was like, why is Schaefer? And I think what, because here's what they were trying to do in the 1970s, early 70s. They were um, trying to keep on to new left ideas while grounding them in Christianity. So they rejected secularism. Secularism is very bad. Schaefer is like a punching bag against secularism. So they like Schaefer for that, especially because they could, they could go on campus at Berkeley, the Christian World Liberation Front, people like Sharon Gallagher, and they'd say, they'd evangelize by saying basically, your worldview can't account, can't make sense of all the things you're advocating. Like you're against Vietnam. Well, so are we, we're against Vietnam, but we actually have a moral base because we're Christians. You don't because you're secular. So they'd use Schaefer. So that's how it worked. Um, but, but by and large, the, the people who advocated this movement, they were not scriptural interpreters. You know, Jim Wallace, he went around with a Bible that had all the, the verses on the poor cut out of it. And he would speak places and he'd say, he'd open the Bible, he'd show all the holes in it, and he'd say, this is the Bible of modern Americans. It's full of holes. And, and that was his argument. And then they throw in verses, like they'll use Matthew 25, uh, treat the least of these, right, in a kind, compassionate way. Or they'll go back uh, to, you know, little verses from the prophets, let justice roll down like waters. And then they'll smuggle in all their leftism under that. They're not interpreting the text. They're assuming new left ideas of equality. And then they put a veneer of scripture over it and call it Christianity. 
And that's what they did back then. That's what they're doing today. Same thing. So you have, um, you know, to reiterate, you have Russell Moore being discipled, in a sense, by Ron Sider. He's got two shelves of his books. He's saying, I agree with him on a lot of things. We're going to platform him at the ERLC. Smoking is a pro-life issue. You have um, pro smoking kills people. You have Tim Keller being influenced. <laughs> so that's right. Richard Mao uh, has influenced Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition and Bruce Ashford at Southeastern Seminary and a whole host of others. But the point is that these guys were, were affected by new left ideas in the 60s. And they Christianized them. And now a new generation of Christians is looking back to them. Uh, Samuel Escobar is another one respected at the Gospel Coalition. Um, but liberation theology is what he believes. Um, so, so there's a number of these lines that connect from what happened then to what's happening now. So the theo- here's the theological play. Happened back then, and it's happening now. Step one, expand the gospel to be more than just the salvation of souls for eternity. It's now the salvation of temporary political institutions. That's what the gospel is, and it requires political action, not just sharing the message of Jesus' coming and what he did for sinners. So that's step one. Step two is interpret the Bible in a different way, not according to a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. Contextualize it. Read it through the lens of modern, oppressed societies. Um, Understand the Bible in a more nuanced kind of way, a more sophisticated way, a more elite kind of way. And, and, and then you will be able to see things in verses like let justice roll down like waters that others don't see. Um, third thing is change the mission of Jesus. So the Jesus who came to seek and save that which was lost is, not, is now the Jesus who came to also promote social justice and speak out against the system. So he's a rebel to Rome. And if you can do those three things, inevitably there will be one more thing. It'll change the character of the church. The church will no longer see itself as um, the, the, the church of the New Testament saw themselves, a church that has an eternal component. They represent an eternal kingdom, but they're present in a, a culture in which they're present. Um, the, the, the church that inevitably will arise from that is the church that will look at culture, step outside of it, critique it, and try to mold it into a temporary social justice framework for the redemption of society in the here and now. It's a utopian scheme for the salvation of what we're looking at in the flesh and blood, not eternal salvation. Well, it's exactly right, because now you're, you're, the, the body is it's not just defined by what Scripture says. It's now defined by how ethnically diverse it is. It's now defined by a whole host of other factors. How inclusive is it? Can it really give a critique on society if it's not as diverse as the society around it? And so instead of qualifying leaders based on what Titus says, we're looking at their levels of oppression and were they historically discriminated against. And so these things are taking root in the church, and now the church is used as a political instrument for social change. And that's what leftists are using. It's, it's a dream come true for the left to get all these Christians whom they've had such a hard time with over the years, and the religious right, and Jerry Falwell, and oh my goodness, 
Now we're going to use those same mechanisms to forward a left-leaning agenda. And not only do we have Hollywood now and the media uh, and the Democratic Party and the educational system will have the last thing we, we have been waiting to have for years, and that's the church, the evangelical church. And the solution is to get back to the, the eternal things, to realize that the church is act, act, represents an eternal kingdom and it's, it's a life house, uh, it, yeah, it's a life house in the here and now to tell men to repent of their sin, to come and trust in Jesus Christ. And no matter what problems your culture has, because every culture has them, because they're made up with men and women, they'll always have problems. There's no, there's no way around it. Every culture will have problems. The church's primary job is not to address those problems, but to address men's souls, and the rest will fall into place. When we, we come with the message of the gospel and we come with a cup of water as well. We come with, with care and compassion because we love people just as Jesus did. But we don't confuse the two. We don't say that that cup of water is the gospel and that we don't have a real gospel unless we have the cup of water. We, have, we should have an eternal focus. It's reading the gospel through the lens of the new left. So alongside terms like salvation, repentance, forgiveness, and sin, we now have words like inclusion, diversity, equity, redistribution, power. These are now words that are living alongside biblical words and like leeches taking the power of the church to promote a different agenda. Well, we all, all like human flourishing. Who doesn't like human flourishing, right? We're all for that. The implication when people use that today is you can't flourish in the status quo impossible. That you got the system stacked against you. So we need to change things in the system to promote human flourishing. Karl Marx did. Um, I mean, every philosopher and every political theorist has tried to bring about some kind of a perfect society. I'm going to go back to Richard Mao, 1973 political evangelism. Richard Mao believes that part of the mission of the church is to redeem culture. That's part of the gospel. That's the catch. It's not enough for everyone to be saved. There's something else that must happen. And of course, we know that discipleship is important. People need to follow Christ, right? Um, but what Richard Mao is saying is that the very institutions of society must change. Now, this is not something that Paul did or Jesus did. Paul, even uh, when it comes to slavery, even said he gave commands in a pagan slave system on how to function in that system. He gave commands to Christians who would be living under persecution of Nero, how to live in that system and be a salt and light. It's not what Richard Mao's talking about. They're talking about fundamentally changing the hierarchies that exist and swapping them out with more just and equitable hierarchies. Justice is defined by, well, it's equality, really, and an egalitarian sense of that. So, no, it doesn't. But this is where we're reading scripture through the lens of the new left. Yeah, justice isn't blind to them. Justice actually has to take the blind, the, 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 the strap off to see the differences in socioeconomic groups and then adjust for those differences. And that's what the new left believed. The new left wanted an egalitarian utopia where everyone was equal, they had equal opportunity, they had equal outcome. Uh, no, nothing limited the freedom that individuals had. And evangelicals have bought into that prima facie first, and then they are approaching the scripture with that ethical idea in their minds. 
And so Richard Mao believed in a, kind of a rudimentary form of what's called principal pluralism. You hear this in a lot of the Kuyperian uh, philosophers today and theologians. And the, the ideal society was not a Christian society, right? Even though we're supposed to do political evangelism, we're not trying to create a Christian society. We're trying to create a society that extends freedoms and privileges and economic well-being to everyone, no matter what their religion or even now their sexual orientation. So the basis for which the Founding Fathers came and started the government uh, here in the United States for a moral and religious people, they had an oath of office that, believed, that assumed a divine uh, standard of of rewards and punishments after death, or else it wouldn't make sense, that assumes separation of powers, assume things like mankind being evil and needing to be limited. Um, the kind of government that was set up is being undermined by these people, because they don't actually believe in Christian assumptions approaching uh, influencing the government um, at its base. So it's, it's creating a, apart from God, apart from a biblical framework, it's creating this utopia. And that's part of the church's job. That's the mission. Secularism. And it's gotten worse since Mao wrote that book. And the reason for it is because in the word human flourishing, where's the focus? It's on how are humans doing, right? That's not a bad thing to be concerned about humans and how they're, they're functioning. So what about a society that honors the Lord? Shouldn't that be what Christians are pushing towards? His, his principles, uh, you know, being um, the, the foundation for everything. But that's not uh, what human flourishing. Human flourishing takes the, the focus off what God wants and puts it on what's best for humans. It's a phrase that has been used uh, for a long time, mostly really in libertarian circles, more kind of libertarian secular circles, and now it's made its way to um, gospel coalition types and uh, the church. Well, liberals are masters at reinterpreting words to make their ideas more palatable, so taking a word that might be favorable, I mean, who's against waking up? Waking up's a good thing, we, but getting woke, we don't, that doesn't mean, doesn't mean <laughs> the same thing we think of. Um, and so they're a master at changing terms. Uh, and they're also a master at projection. Everything they accuse conservatives of, they're doing. They say they want to exert uh, influence through cultural engagement in the political sphere. And then when someone like Mike, Mike Pence is in the White House and that influence is being exerted, they decry it and say that the conservatives are just hungry for power. But that's the thing that they want is power. That's all they care about. They, they say that we're in a nationalistic Christianity right now on the right. But the thing is, they're obsessed with the nation. Well, it's the critical part of critical theory. Critical theory cannot, it's a tick and a dog situation. It cannot exist apart from a host. And the leftists currently uh, running Christian cultural institutions are critical of the infrastructure that was existing before them and the one that currently exists in Donald Trump's White House. And so they are critical. It's negative, negative, negative. Rip it down, rip it down, rip it down. And it's all deconstruction. Uh, there's the positive message is that, you know, maybe someday if we get our way, we'll have a utopia, but we know that won't happen. And so um, 
So it's really a sad, miserable state of existence. And you know, they accuse us of being negative and us of you know, harping on fear and stuff, but that's all they market is fear. Uh, and they're afraid of things that frankly are not, I mean, they're afraid that uh, you know, if you're a minority in this country, you, know, you could get killed because of your minority status. Or they're afraid that uh, the planet is going to um, you know, be so polluted that humans will die or won't be able to live here. Uh, they're afraid that you know, the Klan is going to come back, or the list goes on. Um, but they're not as afraid of the things that are actually happening right in front of us. They're not afraid of Antifa. Uh, they're not afraid of, um, you know, they don't talk about abortion unless it's in this holistic kind of eight different issues. Smoking's part of it. So the things that they should be afraid of, that the scripture warns are actual problems, and we look around us and we see their actual problems that are in a triage situation, we would want to go and focus on those more. They, they downplay those, and they elevate issues that in some cases aren't even issues. When my wife and I were at Southeastern, we were trying to find a church, and we kept going to these churches and finding out that they would have a seminar or a conference on uh, racial reconciliation or something like that. I remember asking my wife one day, because it was right after I had logged into my student account, and right beside the login was an article that they wanted you to click on and read. And it was something like the 10 ways that you might be racist and not realize it. And I looked it up. And some of the reasons were living in a neighborhood that mostly is comprised of white people. If you go to a work environment and the bosses happen to be white, it's things like that that show you that you might be a racist. And so we, I remember asking my wife, do you see any examples of white supremacy or racism exerting themselves in the community or at work or at church? And she couldn't think of any. I couldn't think of any. I had never seen anyone do anything violent in a racist, uh, from a racist motivation. I had never seen anyone use racially charged terms to name call, nothing. But yet everywhere I looked and just about every church I visited, there was something having to do with racial reconciliation. And, and here's, here's why this is divisive. And it, it actually corrupts the fundamental unity of communion table. You are now creating the, the idea that a problem exists where none existed before. And so people who were fine with their neighbors are now starting to suspect that maybe their neighbors are racist. I mean, everyone's talking about it. It's judging. It's, Pharise it's Phariseeism. It is creating a new extra layer uh, that's not even God's law. It's, it's an, a man's law and re redefining the sin of partiality into this power relationship that if you have power, you must be racist. And now you're suspecting everyone. And so they're not focused on their own sin, like pornography, which I happen to know is a big problem there. That's not even really hardly ever mentioned. But you hear racism all the time. Tim Keller was influenced by the Frankfurt School. He talks about this in his book, The Reason for God. And while he has rejected um, some of their secular ideas, he has kept some of those ideas. And he has been very affected by a neo-Kyperian understanding of the relationship of the church to the greater society. And he's one of the biggest movers and shakers in liberalizing the church. And one of the ways he does it 
is by positing a third way between Republicans, between Democrats, between red state and blue state. And he believes the church should transcend those things. This is very appealing to pastors who want a big church that will appeal to everyone. But what he does is he ends up flatlining sin because he'll say that abortion and what the, the Democrats' concept of racial injustice are on the same, they're life issues, they're the same. And so a Christian can be concerned with, be part of either party and concerned with uh, either issue. One of the things I didn't mention earlier, and I probably should have, in this neo-Kyperian understanding, uh, where there's this common grace, uh, where the church is supposed to engage the culture, but not redeem the culture necessarily um, in a salvific way, there's also this understanding that all sins are equal in a certain sense. It's a flatlining of sin. The Bible does not. There's, there's, it's getting rid of all hierarchies, including that hierarchy. But what it does is it sets up a new hierarchy because it's elevating sins that the culture says are sins, racism being one of them, and not even a definition resembling the biblical definition of partiality. And then it takes sins like homosexuality and it downplays them. And, and, and here's the surface on which it downplays them. And Tim Keller has been instrumental in forwarding this. It is the concept of idolatry. Every sin is idolatry. And so if, and I'll, I'll quote Bruce Ashford, who is a neo-Kyperian, very affected by Tim Keller. J.D. Greer is very affected by Tim Keller. Um, many are. Uh, Bruce Ashford once, when I was at Southeastern, said in a chapel that there were idols on both sides of the aisle. And on the left side, you could have the idol of abortion, killing people, right? And on the right side, you have the idol of ethno-nationalism. It's the word he used. So people have to be careful, if they're Christians, of falling into too far on either side so that they fall into idolatry. Now, I can think of maybe some kooks <laughs> who would consider themselves to be on the right who might be white supremacists. But that's not mainstream Republican Party political thought. Yet, on the Democratic side of the aisle, they will boot you out of the party if you do not endorse abortion. So it is, a, it is not equal. And even if, and, and this may be politically incorrect to say in the society, but I'm going to go ahead and say it, even white supremacy is not as evil in the mind of God as killing a human life. Well, they would not see it that way. Here's what Tim Keller has done to, to put a cap on it. Tim Keller has moved the evangelical church from a place to, in which they would never vote for a Democrat to a place in which many of the young evangelicals out there would consider voting for a Democrat or they just won't vote at all because neither side really is representing the Christian view because they both have idolatry. Al Mohler was a hero of mine, and the reason that I joined a Southern Baptist church in the first place was because I wanted to be part of the same denomination Al Mohler was part of. However, Al Mohler has been at least slightly compromised for a long time on some of these issues. Al Mohler believes that there has been a stain of racism in the Southern Baptist Convention, which has continued even after 1995 when the denomination supposedly apologized for any complicity they had in that. And Al Mohler has been quoted as saying 
that the stain will exist until heaven. Al Mohler has introduced a category of sin that can never be eliminated even with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that one can do. We'll be with the stain of racism until heaven. Southern Baptist Convention. So Al Mohler um, has enabled, just like Carl Henry did to all these evangelicals in the 1970s, Carl Henry's disciple, who he mentored, Al Mohler, is doing the same thing for a new crop of evangelicals like Jarvis Williams, Curtis Woods, um, and Matt Paul, who all teach at his university. They, they, these are critical race theorists. Uh, these are people who are as left as can be on the way that they approach the scripture with the assumptions from, um, they approach it from a, a more liberation theology perspective. Uh, you can read Jarvis Williams' uh, curric, his, his uh, syllabus, and you see this. But Al Mohler has run cover for them, and he defends them. He defends them. But not so, so philosophically, Al Mohler has given them cover by positing a stain of racism, which will always be there. So if the stain's always there, what do you want to do with the stain? You want to get rid of it. So critical race theorists come and they say, we have the perfect solution to spray on that stain and to wipe it off. Well, if the stain's always going to be there, you're going to be perpetually wiping it off. That's job security. So, so these guys are given a, a useful place in the Southern Baptist Convention. So Al Mohler has that issue. Now, the other issue he has is that in 2015 at a Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission um, uh, conference, Al Mohler repented, used that word, for denying same-sex orientation. So he is, believes that homosexuality is an innate orientation. Well, what Al Mohler uh, says is that it's part of the fallen condition of man to be bent in a certain direction towards sin, and some are bent towards homosexuality. But this would mean, if true, that those who have proclivities towards murdering other people or racism, let's say, they would also uh, have that orientation. And well, it, possibly, yeah. Yeah, it could be. And he's opening the door for that. And he's saying that even after someone saves, is saved, that they could still have this orientation. And so instead of using biblical language, like we're all uh, depraved or we all are sinful or we all are in need of redemption and restoration, he's using the world's terminology. And when the world hears that, they think that he's talking about an innate, fixed orientation that cannot be changed, that's part of the creation of an individual. So he has, um, in a certain way, passively run cover for someone like a Nate Collins, who uh, started the Revoice Conference. Nate Collins was a student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where Al Mohler is the president. And Nate Collins uh, organized a conference called Revoice, which was dedicated to the normalization of homosexual orientation in evangelical circles. And so Al Mohler um, is not completely guiltless when it comes to this because he has, without endorsing it explicitly, he has given cover by the statements that he has made that are erroneous, both on the issue of a stain of racism and the issue of same-sex orientation. So within the last year or so, since the, the statement on social justice and the gospel was signed by men like uh, John MacArthur, and uh, Tom Askell and a few others in Southern Baptist circles especially, Al Mohler 
um, has had a peculiar pattern uh, by which he engages this issue of social justice. On his radio show, uh, Al Mohler will, in the abstract, condemn critical race theory. Al Mohler will condemn liberalization in other denominations and other facets of society. What Al Mohler will not do is go after the people in his very backyard where he has the most control over the situation. He will not exert that control and he will not uh, fire or um, try to at least uh, correct and then um, promote some kind of a retraction to false teaching that has gone on at his institution where critical race theory is taught. He will defend just about all the liberals when they're, uh, when they're getting in hot water for their liberalism. He, will, he keeps his mouth shut when the conservatives are under attack. I'll give you a few examples real quick. John MacArthur uh, was under attack for a comment he made about Beth Moore. James White was under attack by Eric Mason for supposedly a racist comment he made years ago. Um, the, Tom Askell. No, Tom Askell was under attack for a documentary he was making on this issue. Al Mohler did not defend either of those, uh, all three of those men, and he claims they're friends. Yet, when Matt Hall or Southwestern Seminary or Danny Aiken at Southeastern um, are in trouble, Mohler goes to bat for them publicly. He does. Yeah, for, for um, in the case of Southwestern, for firing someone for sharing their testimony. Robert Oscar Lopez, and he shared a testimony about how Jesus had saved him from homosexuality. But Al Mohler ran cover for Southwestern when they were in hot water for that. David Platt. David Platt, I think, influenced a lot of young evangelicals before the social justice movement really started, the latest incarnation of it to start thinking in those terms. And what I mean by that is he, he came up with a book called Radical. And in the book, there's actually some good principles in it, but what David Platt does, the, the effect of it essentially, is that many evangelicals felt pretty bad for enjoying material things. There's kind of an, an edge to it that condemns material things and having um, too, too much and then elevates the idea of moving into poverty-stricken areas and, and and that's our Christian duty. And so David Platt put this book out there. And so it's kind of started people thinking in terms of poverty good, money and riches bad. David Platt um, became uh, head of the North American Mission Board. And then he resigned uh, essentially because the politics were too much for him. And he's been pastoring, but he's been, he's been around the block. He's been in the, the denominational structure. He's been a pastor. And he's very popular with a lot of young evangelicals. In 2000, in, I believe it was 19, at the, uh, actually it was in 2018, at the Together for the Gospel conference, David Platt gave a classic articulation of the social justice interpretation of Scripture. He took, um, I believe, a verse in Amos, let justice roll down like waters. And then after that, it was sociology, the rest of the lecture that he gave. It was the disparities that exist between blacks and whites. And he used those disparities to question whether the church was actually doing the job of the church. And so David, David Platt has um, forwarded this. And now Joe Carter from the Gospel Coalition uh, is serving at his church, and he's speaking at places like just recently the Just Gospel Conference, which is the most ironically named conference because it's anything but just the gospel. 
and he is now uh, forwarding social justice. Uh, one last thing about David Platt. Uh, last year, Donald Trump came to David Platt's church uh, to receive uh, a blessing, essentially. It was uh, a, a day in which many pastors had signed a statement that they would pray for the president. David Platt did not sign it, but Donald Trump showed up at his church to be prayed over. And David Platt, um, after this took place, issued a release to his congregation, an announcement, um, and uh, it bordered on apology. It was uh, saying he understood and affirming the concerns of those in his congregation who felt Donald Trump uh, was a racist. And David Platt uh, gave safe haven for those concerns. And, um, and, and so David Platt has been, I would say, a, an advocate, a soft advocate of this social justice movement. I'll tell you what, it, at Southeastern, there were three statements against Donald Trump or the alt-right in 2017, that fall semester alone. Uh, two of them originating with people at the school, one of them just signed by professors there. And the assumption behind them is that Donald Trump has people from the alt-right working for him, like Bannon. Uh, and at the time, he actually, he didn't. When they issued the statement, Bannon had already left the administration. Uh, but Donald Trump gives safe haven for people from the alt-right. And um, the rest of it is honestly uh, media-pushed uh, hype about comments he's made that were um, usually taken out of context or read in uncharitable ways. Um, and so a narrative that the media has spun has now been accepted as truth in evangelical circles. Well, here, here's the funny part. This is the thing that gets me about the whole thing uh, against Donald Trump. The, you just kind of nailed it. There are reasons that you would think an evangelical would have to be concerned about Donald Trump. Uh, if you go to his website, you, you, you can buy... You can buy a homosexual t-shirt, you know, gays for Trump, you know, and it's marketed on his website. So he has, he has done a lot for soft-pedaling homosexuality to a formerly conservative group. But yet, that never gets brought up as a reason for rejecting Donald Trump. It's almost always, without fail, the fact that he's supposedly a racist. So the evangelicals are running in the same circles as CNN and MSNBC and other media uh, institutions. And, and this is the sin that James talked about. James, in the book of James, we're told not to show partiality to the rich man. Well, what's happening today is that evangelicals are showing partiality to those who have the most money and power in society. The media, Hollywood, Democratic Party, and the academics. They are, they are invested in the sin of partiality. And the ironic thing is, as they're doing it, they're saying it's in the name of the poor and the oppressed. It's a complete lie. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.